This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Let me ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 26, Gospel of Matthew, as we continue in our series of studies in Matthew. Today we're looking at chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. Hear the Word of God. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially for this portion of your word that we look at today, Uh, a painful passage indeed, not just for Peter and what happened, but as we read what happened uh, there. But Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you would edify us and strengthen us and encourage us and equip us and feed our souls and prepare us to live for you this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This incident, Peter's denial of Jesus, is one that indirectly demonstrates the truthfulness, demonstrates the honesty, it demonstrates the reliability of our Bibles. After all, if if the Bible and if the gospel were merely of human invention, it would never have told that one of its foremost leaders, one of its apostles, had so fearfully and faithlessly denied his master. It would have been very easy simply to pass over in silence this embarrassing and awkward blunder on Peter's part. But you see, the Bible does not pass over what happened here. It records it. Not one time, but four times. You see, every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter's failure. Why? Why would they record that? Well, the Gospels record this sad occurrence for the same reason that they 
record the impatience of Abraham. For the same reason the Bible records the, the fear and the anger of Moses. The same reason the Bible records the adultery and deception of King David. Why is that? The reason is the Bible is not a book about great men. The Bible is a book about a great Savior. Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, that great Savior has been betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And last week we saw how after his arrest, he was taken to a hearing before the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas. And during that time, they mock his claim to be the Messiah. They blindfolded him. They punched him. They taunted him, prophesy, you Messiah, who hit you? You see, they, they denied that Jesus had the power of prophecy. But immediately after their words, in this next passage, Matthew records the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him three times. It's no accident, not only historically and chronologically, but thematically, that this fulfillment of prophecy occurs immediately after the Jewish leaders denied him the power of prophecy. And now, just as after the arrest of Jesus, last week we saw where Matthew follows up with what happened with Jesus, with his appearing before the high priest. Now Matthew jumps back over to follow the other trail, and that was Peter who, after fleeing, had come back and followed at a distance to see what was going to happen to Jesus, his curiosity overcoming, at least to some degree, his fear. And Matthew follows up uh, with, with Peter now and, and what happened here. Peter was able to gain access into the courtyard of the house of the high priest, and it goes on, picks up from there. But as we look at this passage and look at what happened uh, here with Peter, I want us to Think about it under three heads. Organize our thinking under three heads. First of all, this passage serves as a reminder to us that Jesus' words are trustworthy. That Jesus' words are trustworthy. After all, he had told Peter exactly what would happen. Look back in chapter 26, verse 34. After Jesus had prophesied that... uh, When the shepherd was stricken, the sheep would be scattered. Uh, Peter takes exception, and Jesus says to him in verse 34, Truly, Peter, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And as we read it here, it happened exactly as Jesus said. And so once again in Matthew, uh, we have fulfillment of prophecy, and as we've seen, Matthew takes pains to show how Jesus' life and ministry fulfills Old Testament prophecy, demonstrating that he is the Messiah, which the the Jewish leaders were blind to. But he also shows fulfillment of Jesus' words within the Gospel of Matthew, and we have that case here. And it just reminds us that Jesus' words, and not just the red letters in your Bible, but God's word, the Bible, is entirely trustworthy. That when it speaks to us about creation, 
uh, how creation happened, God's sovereignty and reign over this universe that he has made. We can believe those words. We understand that that's trustworthy. When the Bible speaks to us about salvation, when it tells what the Lord has done for us in Christ, when it tells us that Christ is the only way of salvation, we have every reason to believe that it is, it is true, it is reliable. When the Bible speaks to us about our sin, that we are sinners, that Christ is a completely adequate and sufficient atonement for that sin, when it speaks to us of the second coming of Christ, things that have not yet happened that the Bible speaks of and prophesies, we can trust the reliability of the Bible. God's word is always fulfilled. Jesus' word was always fulfilled. The track record of a true prophet will be 100%. We learn that in Deuteronomy 18. And so whatever God's word speaks to, we believe it. We count on it. We can bank on it whether it's talking about God or about ourselves or about creation or about the future, whatever it might be, this simply serves to remind us that Jesus' words are always trustworthy. That's important to us, especially when we face temptation. When we're confronted with that lie that somehow if we go our own way, that somehow if we sin against God, we're going to be happier, we're going to be more content, we're going to have more joy than if we deny ourselves the temporary indulgence of the pleasures of sin for obedience to the word of God. You go back and you think Jesus was never wrong, not once. And so when he tells me that to obey the Lord is blessing, that I demonstrate my love for the Lord by obedience to him, that we're not to presume on God's grace, he's telling the truth. When the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, when it says be sure your sins will find you out, when it says the wages of sin is death, literally, but also figuratively, the Bible's telling the truth. And so this passage simply encourages us to, it reminds us that Jesus' words are always trustworthy. And as we mentioned, the very fact that the Bible records such a thing as this about one of its foremost leaders reminds us that God's word deals straight with us. It's honest. It's telling us the truth. There's a second thing, though, and a couple of other things I want to spend more time on, uh, but certainly that reminder of the trustworthiness of Jesus' word and of the Bible in general is important. But second thing I want us to think about here is that this passage serves to warn us against self-confidence. It warns us against Self-confidence, it exposes to us the danger of thinking more highly of ourselves in terms of where we are spiritually, our maturity, our, our following Christ, than we ought to. And that was exactly Peter's problem here. You turn back where we just were earlier in chapter 26, uh, verse 33, Jesus has said that the, the disciples would all fall away be scattered. And in verse 33, Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. It's a pretty bold statement, especially because Jesus said they would fall away. Not only does he disagree with Jesus, which is always a risky proposition. Uh, in fact, it's uniformly fatal. Uh, you're always wrong when you disagree with Jesus, which he does. Uh, it wasn't the first time. But he also betrays uh, as we've seen before, a very high opinion of his own strength, a very high opinion 
of his own ability, uh, far above even that of his peers. They may all fall away, Jesus. You may well be right regarding these guys, but I will never fall away. Not I probably won't, not I'll try hard not to, but I will flat never do what you just said that we all would do. And of course, then Jesus goes on in verse 34 to speak specifically to Peter and tell him how he would deny even Knowing Jesus, he would deny the Lord. And Peter replies to that, again, taking exception to what Jesus says. Verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter affirms most emphatically that even at the cost of his life itself, he will remain loyal. He will be faithful to Jesus. And I think Peter was absolutely 100% sincere in what he said. That's kind of the scary part, isn't it? Uh, Peter meant it. He really saw himself as being that strong. He really saw himself as being able to withstand the worst the enemy can bring. Bring it on. I will stand. I am strong. I have confidence in Myself. Well, Peter had the advantage of knowing one of these verses that I'll refer you to. It's in the Proverbs, book of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. He didn't know this next verse because Paul hadn't yet written it. But you and I know this verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 18. Let, therefore, let, or 12, 18, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's um, chapter 10. What is, what is Paul saying? He's saying, when you start to think, like Peter did, that I can stand, that I'm strong that I can take it, that I won't fail. Paul says, be careful. Because when you think you stand, that's when you're most liable to fall. Or as Proverbs put it, that kind of pride goes before destruction. And that's what Peter was missing, this this sense of self, a right sense of self-doubt. Now, there's a wrong kind of self-doubt. There's a good kind of self-confidence. Good kind of self-confidence would be, with God's help, I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The wrong kind of self-confidence says, you know, even when Jesus says to the, otherwise, I can do this. I'm, I'm strong. I can stand. Um, that's what Peter was missing here. And let's see now in, in the actual experience how that self-confidence played out in the courtyard of the high priest. Not in an upper room with Jesus and his friends, but in the courtyard of arguably the most powerful man in Israel. Jesus is sitting there, verse 69, outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. There were other people around, this, not just the two of them, saying, I do not know what you mean. Jesus is approached by someone here. She's described as a servant girl. One writer says there was not a man but a woman. 
It was not a woman, but a girl, not a free woman, but a slave. Someone of no standing. Someone who is, was as, as humanly unthreatening as possible comes up to Jesus or comes up to Peter and says something. She doesn't accuse him of anything. She doesn't attack him. She doesn't threaten him. She merely makes an observation. You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. Now, given the circumstances, Peter may have found that a little bit threatening to be recognized, uh, to be be identified even in the the least way with Jesus, who uh, was not exactly... Uh, in a happy situation right now, it may have seemed threatening, but she didn't. She didn't threaten him. She didn't accuse him. She just said, "You also were with Jesus." But what does Peter do? He feigns confusion. He responds to her, "I don't know what you're talking about." He just pretends to be clueless about the whole thing. The woman's talking nonsense. I don't, I don't know what you're saying. It's pretty much what what Peter says to her. Now. Peter may have been trying to be evasive, but Matthew describes it exactly. Look at verse 70. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. He knew full well what she was talking about. But by evading the question or the observation, he is, in fact, denying Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, when you're talking nonsense, I I don't understand what you're saying. It was a denial, nevertheless. Well, then uh, we read that Peter went out to the entrance, perhaps moving away. Uh, Luke, I believe, tells us Peter was in a fire warming himself. And the fire, of course, gives off light. Well, let's get away from that light. Let's move to a dark, darker area. Let's go out near the gate, near the entrance. Let's get away from this troublesome servant girl. And so he does that. And um, in verse 71, when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, not even to Peter himself, but just talking to people around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, verse 72, denies it. The second time the word is used there, denied it with an oath. Uh, it's not specified. It's not uh, like we might think of, not a profanity, but, but maybe saying something like, as God lives, you know, invoking God's name as a way to, to uh, add weight to his, to, to his declaration. Maybe he said something like, as, as, as heaven lives, or as, as the Lord lives, or something like that. I do not know the man. Now, here it's not just an evasion. It's an absolute statement of denial. I don't know him. And not only does he, he deny Jesus, knowing Jesus, he even won't say his name to add additional distance between himself and Jesus. He, he doesn't simply say, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I don't know the man. I don't, I don't know this guy you're talking about. I don't know anything about him. I don't know who he is. Name doesn't really ring a bell. I don't know the man. Flat, outright, Denial. And, by the way, in his oath, presumably invoking the name of God, he takes the name of God in vain in so doing. He perjures himself, puts himself under oath, and then lies. I don't know the man. Outright denial. And then third, this third instance of denial, verse 73, after a little while, 
And all these didn't just happen immediately one after another. And in fact, if you read the other Gospels, there may have been some other people who raised questions. Uh, the variety of people seems to indicate that this didn't, didn't just happen three times quickly in a row, but several people uh, came and made observations about Peter. This next one's kind of curious. Verse 73, after a little while, bystanders came up and they said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. As they, 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 they take exception to what Peter said. No, surely you, you are one of them. Because you talk funny. Your accent betrays you. What was it about Peter? Well, Peter was a Galilean. Peter had a northern accent. And here he was in the south in Judea. And they picked up on that right away. Now, it's kind of funny they reached that conclusion. They associate Jesus with Galilee. It's true. Nazareth was in the north. Galilee. Capernaum in the north. Uh, but there were a whole lot of people in Jerusalem at the time from Galilee. People would have had sounded like they were from Galilee, uh, but they just immediately make the connection. Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean, you sound like a Galilean, therefore you are one of his disciples. You must have been with him. It's a little bit tenuous, but that's what they go for. And Peter follows them in that logic, uh, except he denies every, you know, you could have asked, well, you know, so what? Talk like I'm from Galilee. You know, how does that make me one of his disciples? Well, Peter's afraid at this point. And all he knows to do is just deny everything. And he's getting irritated, too. Verse 74, he began to invoke a curse on himself. Something like, may the Lord strike me dead if I'm not telling you the truth. And he swears, he avows, I do not know the man. How many times do I have to say it? You know, do I have to spell it for you? Do you need me to draw you a picture? He invokes the name of God, pronounces a curse on himself, and then proceeds to lie. You know, humanly speaking, Peter had everything going for him. He had just spent the last three years of his life with Jesus. He'd heard him teach. He'd seen him do miracles. He'd been in the upper room just hours maybe before this. Been part of the inauguration of communion, the Lord's Supper. He was there. He was one of those very, very few people in the world who was there at the very first Lord's Supper. He was right there. Jesus had even told them this was going to happen. It's not like he was entirely blindsided by this. Jesus told them this was going to happen. Now, if Jesus said it was going to happen, it was going to happen, but you would think you'd at least have taken some warning. But under the questions... Of a few insignificant people. Peter collapsed. The rock crumbled. You know, it's natural that this passage should follow the one before as Matthew follows what happened with Jesus and then with Peter. But putting them together this way, you can't help but notice the contrast that we find here. Jesus was the one whose life was on the line, Jesus was the one they wanted. 
Jesus was the one who was there in the home of the high priest being interrogated by the most powerful and threatening men in Israel, not just servants, not just those gathered in the courtyard, but by the leaders, the powers of, of Israel. And yet it was Jesus who boldly confesses his identity under oath before them all. And here Peter is, with these people in the courtyard, pronounces an oath on himself and then proceeds to lie, to deny even knowing Jesus. But we shouldn't be too hard on Peter. I think all of us uh, sympathize with Peter. All of us have felt that impulse to cowardice, that impulse to deny everything, whether we've given into it or not, or somehow implicitly deny Jesus merely by our silence. Uh, but we see here that Peter wasn't some sort of paper saint. That he was a real human being. These were scary circumstances, confusing circumstances he found himself in. And when push came to shove, the best he could do was to distance himself as far from Jesus as possible. I don't know what you're talking about. God help me, I don't know the man. God strike me down if I'm lying. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know him. That's the best he could do. Despite his bravado, despite his self-confidence, when the rubber hits the road, he had nothing. And he fell flat on his face. But what happened then? Well, the third thing. The passage not only reminds us that Jesus' words are trustworthy, and when he speaks to us, we need to listen and heed what he says, uh, and he, and certainly the Bible as, as a whole, well, this passage not only serves to warn us against self-confidence, against somehow thinking that, that we can do what we need to do on our own, apart from Jesus, but then it also serves to encourage us when we fail, when we fail in various ways. And Peter failed badly. We read here, after the third denial, immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Ah, and now he remembers that he hears that rooster and it triggers that memory. Oh, yeah. And he was devastated. And it says he went out. He left the courtyard. That was no place for him anymore. He went out and just broke down in, uh, in, in tears. And you know, those tears reflect the reality of his repentance. You know, what was the difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot? You know, Judas, it says, was filled with remorse. He goes out and commits suicide for what he had done. You see, he was filled with remorse because he looked at the kind of thing he had done. And even being the son of perdition that he was, he said, what kind of person would sell out his best friend like that? I must be a horrible person. In fact, I can't even live with myself. And he goes and commits suicide. Peter denies Jesus, denies knowing him, not once, but three times. His best friend in the world. But Peter goes out and no doubt feels remorse. But these are tears of brokenness, tears of grief, tears of repentance over what he had done. And the difference was, what we saw, what Mike read earlier in John uh, chapter 21, 
where Jesus restores Peter, it's often seen that those three questions that Peter, uh, that Jesus asks Peter, Simon, do you love me? Three times, reflecting the, the denials of Jesus that we read here. Uh, restoring him, embracing him, bringing him back. Christ restored him. And then Christ used him mightily, powerfully. You see, Peter was a better man because of this experience. After this, Peter much more reflected those whom Jesus spoke about in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that they are bankrupt spiritually before God. Those who recognize the truth of what Jesus said when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, this incident destroyed Peter, but it also made Peter, made him better. And it also gave him a tremendous sympathy for those in like circumstances and for those who are suffering generally. If you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, note how many times Peter refers to suffering and specifically to those who are suffering for the name of Jesus. You know, Peter uh, heard from Jesus when Jesus restored him about the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Peter was changed. We'll look at that in just a moment. But Peter eventually glorifying God by dying for his Lord Jesus and dying for his testimony to the gospel. But Peter was sympathetic. Peter knew what it was to cave. And when you read First and Second Peter, you pick up on that sympathetic note as he encourages those who themselves are in scary situations and who are being threatened because of their faith in Jesus. You see, that's the good news in this passage, is that God can take us, despite our failures, despite our weakness, despite our stumbling, and work on us and use that to build us and to make us and to equip us into the saints he wants us to be, into the people that he can use for the kingdom. And as Paul later was going to write, it's not our strength that God uses. It's our weakness, because it's in our weakness that the power and glory of God is seen. When we are weak, then he is strong. When we see ourselves as strong, it's as if God holds his power back and says, okay, let's see how well you do on your own. But you see, this passage teaches us that God, even with our failures, even despite our failures, even through our failures, equips us and makes us into the kind of people that he can use, people like Peter. People like John Mark, who had fled and abandoned missionary journey, and Paul refused to take him the next time. But then later, Paul could write of him, well, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me in ministry. You see, Mark was one of those people who failed early, and yet God used him later. Paul describes him as useful in the kingdom, useful in ministry. We know there's a detail here that, that Matthew doesn't record, Luke does. Luke tells us that after the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Their eyes met. And I've often wondered what the expression was on Jesus' face when that rooster crowed and Peter sees Jesus. Maybe he could see him through a window or maybe they were bringing Jesus through the courtyard. It doesn't say but he can see Jesus. And Jesus, after the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. 
Was it a look of bitter disappointment? Was it maybe a look of harsh accusation? Was it a, a smug look of, I told you so? doesn't say, and we don't know. But I don't think, just speculating, I don't think it was any of those things. I think it was a look that others had seen from Jesus before, that Jesus had given to those who were broken, to those who were helpless, to those who were hurting. There may have been just a hint of, see, Peter, I told you, to that look. But I think far more than that, it was a look of compassion. Because Jesus knew full well what this was doing and would do to Peter. I think it was a look that said, yes, Peter, I know full well what you've just done. And now you have one more reason, a painful one, to listen to me when I'm talking to you. You've denied even knowing me. But I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to go to the cross and die for you. And die, yes, even for this sin of denying me. Yes, Peter, you've crashed and burned. And you think this is the end. On the contrary, my friend, we're just getting started. You have no idea the great things that I've got in store for you. Now, did Peter catch all that when Jesus looked at him? Of course not. But Jesus knew it. Peter, Petros, the rock, had crumbled. He just broken into a million pieces. But Jesus was going to take those pieces and put them back together again. And not in the strength of Peter, but now in the strength of the Lord. Make him a mighty force, a rock for the kingdom of heaven. But it wasn't just Peter. Jesus wasn't going to let just Peter's failure derail his plans. He does that for you. He does that for me as well. Let's pray. Father, we identify with Peter because we too know the pain of failure, the pain of crumbling. Father, we recognize that we fail you in all kinds of ways when we sin against you, when we're silent, when we should speak up, perhaps even when we have denied you in different ways. Father, make us bold. We thank you that we, like Peter later, serve a resurrected Christ and that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that we would be encouraged when we stumble, just as you restored and used Peter greatly. Our stumbles, our failures does not mean all is lost. You don't give up on us. You continue to work, continue to make us what you would have us to be and indeed use our failures to that end. Father, we pray that we would be humble. We pray that we would recognize just how weak we are and how absolutely dependent we are on you every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.